G'day and welcome to the MSF Farm Talk podcast. My name is Tegan Buckley. In this episode, we're chatting with Bill Crabtree about dryland farming and how he manages farming on the edge of the desert. Bill shares his biggest learnings when it comes to farming in low rainfall country in the West, as well as his thoughts on keeping ground cover in the system and retaining stubble, especially in the dry years. I just wanted to give a massive shout out and thank you to the SA Grain Industry Trust for their grower group funding to help us develop this podcast. Known as No-Till Bill for his enthusiasm for no-tillage and the role that he's played in the WA no-tillage revolution. Bill began his career with the WA Department of Ag as a researcher into minimum tillage for wind erodible soils in his home erosion swept town of Jaramunga. Bill then extended his work to farmers in Esperance and the rest of the state, which led him to receiving the Land Carer of the Year Award in WA in 1996. Bill regularly presents at global events for Australia on no-tillage developments. Bill won the 2009 McKell Medal and has written the book Search for Sustainability in Dryland Agriculture and has a master's degree in science and a bachelor's degree in ag science from Uni WA. Welcome, Bill, to the MSF Farm Talk podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Pleasure to be here, Tegan. So to kick off this episode, Bill, what has been the most rewarding aspect of your no-till career so far? Probably the letters to the editor and the feedback that you get as you travel around and you talk to people and they just constantly say how much no-till has changed the soil. It's improved their profitability, it's improved weed control, it's improved disease control, it's improved whole farm water use efficiency, it's allowed dry sowing, it's allowed us to do wide rows. Um, and all of these things were not popular to begin with, um, but there was a lot of resistance to um, to the adoption of no-till in Western Australia. And in two, 1992, we pretty much, um, you know, hit it out of the park with, um, you know, with our determination to um, stick with what we knew to be true, which what we was, which which is what we were observing. Mm, definitely. So let's talk about the dry years and how you've managed farming on the edge of the desert. Can you tell us what drew you to the challenge and also what's been your biggest learnings about farming in low rainfall country in the West that maybe you can share with us? Yeah, well, I started 13 years ago and I've just sold the farm and um, it's been a tremendous experience. Um, we've, you know, the last three of the last four years have been very difficult. We've averaged about 100 millimetres in the winter in those three of the last four and very little summer rainfall and we've dry sown everything. Um, we've improved the soil phosphorus level, we've improved the lime, you know, the, the acidity issue was quite serious on a fair part of the farm. Um, and yeah, dry sowing, good weed control. Um, unfortunately, because it's such a, a, an arid area, uh, any other crop that I tried, I pretty much lost money. The, the one that I didn't lose money on really because of the benefits in the big system was Roundup Ready Canola. And in that, we were able to, or TT Canola, that was also very useful. Um, because we just got very good weed control and that also you know gave us good opportunity to plant wheat the following year and my rotation is probably nine years of wheat in a row and then one year of canola if you look at the average over the the 13 years Um, yeah so it's quite a in many ways people would say that's a very boring uh, rotation and probably um, risky but I found it at least risky Um, you know, because if you grow a good legume in a, in the year that you do get 200 mils of rainfall, you'll produce so much nitrogen, and that nitrogen the following year with a with a very poor rainfall ends up 
you know, overcooking your crop. So, you know, I've just found chickpeas haven't worked, lupins haven't worked, barley hasn't worked because my soil's been too acidic, triticale worked for a little bit, but the price wasn't that good. Um, I've tried quinoa, that obviously is still in development phase. Um, yeah, so wheat's really been the king, and my wheat has actually been a legume over the summer because, surprisingly, because the carbon that's in the, the wheat stubble and the wheat roots um, gets eaten by termites, and termites have a bacteria in their gut that allows them to break the double nitrogen bond that's in the air and turn it into nitrate and ammonia. That's why termites can live off carbon, live off wood, and still produce amino acids. So the termites have become my, um, my rotation, and so I guess you could say it's wheat termites, wheat termites. Yeah, interesting. So in your experience, what were some of those key drivers of successfully farming in low rainfall areas? Um, good weed control, um, making sure I used uh, and cheap weed, weed control, um, mixing the herbicides up to make sure resistance didn't bite, um, and finding patches where you know there were challenges with weeds and hitting them with a sledgehammer in a small area where the problem is. So I guess monitoring of, of areas where there's problems and, um, and dry sowing, you know, that's been an amazing thing, really, because you plant the whole program in, say, April, and it all comes up on the 5th of May or the 15th of May. And, and so when the first drop of rain comes, your, your crop's germinating in a way. And I never had a wheat crop die once it germinated um, in the 13 years that I did that. And probably I, you know, I did it more um, as time went on instead of doing half of the program dry sowing in the last probably five years, that's about 90% dry sowing of the wheat. Moving on to talk a little bit more about, I guess, crop residue, aka ground cover, retaining stubble. Bill, can you cover off on a few important points that you'd like to start with here? Yeah, residue is more important than what most people think it is. You know, it, it's not good weed control versus bad weed control. Like, you know, there's been a, a strong push for um, for burning residue in, in, you know, even in heteros and um, and or chaff dumps, you know, and while I think that that has some value, I think it's it's denying the value of the food for the soil. As my friend from Chile, no-till Carlos Crevetto would say, he says, residue is for the soil as the grain is for man. And if you remove the residue by burning it, when you're burning something, energy's coming out. So instead of burning it and sending it up into the atmosphere, allowing it to stay in the soil and that energy feed the soil microflora and microfauna is, um, you know, builds a new environment underneath the soil. And there's another famous saying that um, as you walk out onto your field, you're walking on the rooftop of a whole other world. And when you walk on that rooftop, um, you, you can imagine what's underneath. It's what same as what's above in our cities. They've got communication lines, they've got water, sewerage, they've got electricity, they've got um, phone signals, they've got, um, they've got all these things happening underground and it's all these communities that are together and they're all working interactively together and they're all grabbing food and recycling the food and sending it down and so you're building these cities, these CBDs. Now if you imagine you, you go into a city with a bulldozer and knock down the city, um, next year you come back, they, a lot of them will have rebuilt but if you go through the bulldozer again and knock it over again, then, or just take all the food away in this case. So that argument's tillage, but if you contemplate this as, um, as, as food, which is just as important as structure, um, you're denying the energy to drive the city. 
So you don't see the magic of no-till in its fullness until you retain as much residue as you possibly can. And that is one negative of too much legume in the system because that can burn up all the carbon because you get these bacteria in the soil that are very happy to eat meat and legumes are meat. And once they eat all this meat, they explode in their population. Then they go looking for carbon, they eat all the carbon. And be, this is one of the problems with Argentina. They, you know, when, when the government was, was, was um, forcing them to grow soya and they couldn't make money out of wheat, they had soya, 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 soya. And their soil structures were collapsing even though they were doing no tillage because they just had too much microbial activity with too much um, protein being eaten. So residue, particularly carbon-based residue, is really important for the structure and the health and the longevity of the community that lives under the soil that does many of the good things that we need to see happen in the soil. And the longer people retain residue and the better they are at no-till and the better they are at retaining residue, you can see it in your district. These guys have got better, healthier, stronger soils that are more resilient in droughts and with other problems that they have as well. Yeah, really interesting. So moving on to ground cover, what's your thoughts around keeping ground cover in the system and retaining stubble, particularly during those dry years with a lot of wind erosion on the cards? Yeah, well, I don't have any sheep, so wind erosion is less of a problem, but I still have northwest facing sl um, slopes, which, you know, catch the wind from the northwest. And and um, and in some of those areas over in the past, they, they have been overgrazed and they became bare and they became urinated on by sheep, so they became acidic. And then I couldn't get the crop to germinate there. So what I did in those areas was I put on lots of lime, two tonne per year over about six years, and uh, in some of those areas, they're not putting chook manure on there just to help probably get some bacteria that are very acid tolerant, which is in the chook manure to help kick things started. And I actually found that to be quite helpful. I didn't do any scientific experiments with it, but, um, but I'm pretty confident that's what happened because I did it on two areas and not on two others. And the two that I did it, uh, they um, improved quite quickly. So, you know, wind erosion keeping all the stubble is okay except for in those areas facing the northwest and except for where the soil became very acidic through uh, urine camps of sheep um in you know in the past you know 100 years of agriculture my farm has been farmed since 1922 so um and it hadn't had any lime on it and, and agriculture is an acidifying process that's okay in, in the mallee fair parts of the mallee in south australian victorian new south wales probably where you got alkaline subsoil which you're able to pick that alkalinity up with roots from depth but there are pockets throughout the York Peninsula and the Air Peninsula and different places in the Mallee that do have acid soils that have got you know less alkaline material at depth and you know the, the period of, and that's something everyone's got to keep their mind on if they don't have alkaline material they've got to watch that so um, so but once you solve that problem and keep the residue even in droughts I've managed to be able to keep enough stubble on 90 8% of the farm to stop erosion. Brilliant. Thank you for those uh, key points. So I guess going back to now your experience with no-till and retaining stubble, most Mallee farmers are no-till farming. Some are even zero-till now. And we're seeing a lot of legumes come into rotations, which is great for improving you know, the soil health and diversifying species. But it also comes with the trade-off of less stubble cover. And we've seen you know, a lot of those droughty years that can wreak havoc with the low ground cover season. So how do you think that we could manage this into the future to keep our farming systems robust and reduce erosion risk? 
Mm, very tricky because everyone that's listening to this has their own little patch and their own different sets of issues. Um, just bear in mind where I was farming, I'm pretty much at Brisbane latitude. So the seasons are so short. You know, it virtually stops raining on the 15th of August at my farm. That's what it's done probably 70% of the years. And after that, maybe 10 mils, maybe 15 is possible. And it starts in mid-May. So for me, there's no legume that I could grow that has made money. I've never seen lupins make any money on my acid soils, even though I'm in an environment where that, that is the best legume. Um, so, look, I... Um, there's lots of um, little comments that people will make that, that, that are throwaway lines that make them look good on the stage. Um, and I'm a little bit against some of those throwaway lines. Um, you know, like, I, I agree that diversity is a good thing to have, but we can't afford to have the diversity. I think you've got to find the next best thing that there is. Um, you know, I know lentils can make you a lot of money as well. And, you know, your farm is a tightrope between making money and remaining sustainable. Um, yeah, so, and Tegan, I don't think anyone knows the answer to the tricky question that you're asking me, but I respect the question. I think it's a good question to ask. And, um, you know, I, I think when we were starting the no-till revolution, we had so many criticisms of what we were trying to do. I mean, I'm reluctant to be too critical of anyone trying something a bit different, but I am also detest the idea that people start telling people what they must do because once you do that, you then cut off all the creativity juices that flow. So, you know, I think, I think we need to have an open discussion and an honest discussion and um, uh, being politically correct is, is the way to go these days, which I've never been a politically correct person. Um, but I think it's dangerous to do that, um, and that's why, because we, you know, so, you know, I don't, I think throwing back in the mix is no, nothing wrong with considering, you know, my experience is valid, you know, wheat on wheat on wheat on wheat, if all the weeds are controlled and the time of sowing's good and the diseases aren't a problem and the insects aren't a problem, um, then, um, you know, I, I think it's a valid, what I've done is valid and it'll be valid for others. And what others do in high rainfall or in cooler conditions south of me will also be, um, uh, you know, we can learn from, from them as well. Yeah. And like you said before, you know, there is a bit of a balance to, to make when it comes to risk and sustainable and viability. So, yeah, thank you for having a crack at that question. Um, so you mentioned before that you've sold the farm now and you've just finished harvest. We had a chat before we started recording this. So what's next for you and Monique? There's some pretty exciting things coming up from the sounds of it. Yeah, there is. It's, um, it's exciting and it's daunting. And, um, you know, I'm particularly this coming year will be off to Africa. Monique will probably come a little later. She's got a job helping girls that have fallen out of the education system, but she's right, you know, in support of what we're trying to do. And that is to scale up agriculture in Africa. You know, Africa has smartphones and smart cars. I've seen plenty of them. I've visited there um, uh, seven different countries in 2019 um, on three different trips and so I got to you know probably spend th nearly three months in Africa then and that was very educational but it's very tricky for them to scale up you know uh, land security tenure of land that's difficult um, get, getting enough um, uh, you know and once you've got land security banks can then say to you okay well we can lend against that land um, so it's difficult for a community to do that. 
but what I would like to do is go into a community, and this is on our website, ariseafricanag.com, and say to a, a community of people that I've become friends with and I trust, and I trust them through other people that have known them for a long time, so I won't be going to you know, areas where I have no um, good, strong, trusting connections. And um, I'll say, well, where's your land? Let's let's look at your land. And let's, um, you know, they've all got one acre at the moment that they're growing a crop that's like, you know, um, at the tonne of the hectare. And I'll say, well, you've got 1,000 millimetres of rainfall. Your soil's pretty good. It's lacking phosphorus, maybe a bit of sulphur, maybe copper zinc, and maybe a bit of lime. Um, anyway, let's fix up those problems. Let's get 1,000 hectares together and clear it together. And instead of growing a one tonne a hectare crop, let's have a go at six tonnes per hectare off, say, a thousand hectares. So that could be 6,000 tonnes of corn or, or soybean, probably be 40% of that yield or 30%. And we'll rotate corn and soybean, depending on where we are. And um, let's use the math simply of uh, just a corn uh, crop for the whole area. So 6,000 tonnes at, say, 300 Australian dollars a tonne, that's $1.8 million in that community, their, their wage is, you know, a dollar a day for each person. And now you've got a community of 200 people that have now pulled in $1.8 million. Uh, I'm switching between US and Australian, but people can work it out, I think. Um, you know, that this is a lot of money. So then what are we going to do with that money? Well, I'll say, well, well pay me out. You know, I'll put some, something in and I'm happy to leave you to it and keep in touch. Um, but I'll get some Australian farmers every so often to come over and um, and they'll, you know, sit with you on the harvester or sit with you on the cedar or the boom spray for two weeks here or two weeks there or subject to this um, virus thing, you know, settling down. Um, and um, and then, you know, sort of be a, be a little bit distant from them but coach them from a distance and then go to another country and do the same thing and another country and do the same thing. So that's the general model that I've got. It's not for us to go over there and set up a big farm and make lots of money. It's about us inspiring them and lifting up their hands. You know, as a Christian, you know, Jesus says, um, you know, if you didn't visit me in prison, you didn't feed me when I was hungry or you didn't clothe me when I had no clothes, then you, you, you're not part of my um, uh, flock. So, you know, as a Christian, I take those words seriously. And um, so that's that's the motivation behind doing this. And um, and it's an exciting journey. It's a journey of faith. And I don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but I'm, um, I'm prepared to take the step out because I know Jesus has called my name. And it's that old saying of, you know, give a man a fish and you'll feed him for a day, teach a man to fish and you've fed him for a lifetime. How amazing is this industry and the opportunity that you're providing? And I'm really excited to, to hear more about your goals. So Arise African Agriculture is your business. So where would you like to hope to be in five years' time? You know, I hope to have kicked off at least two projects in that time and maybe one within one year and who knows, maybe two within two or three years and five within five years. So, you know, that's hopefully what we'll do and hope, I'm hoping that it'll be like a, a room full of mouse traps. We know that Africa has rain. We know they have good loamy soils, but I know they're largely acidic, so we have to manage the lime. We know they need phosphorus. We know they need herbicides. They need GM crops too because full armyworms come in since 2016 into Africa and done a serious lot of damage on their corn. And, of course, the US has had um, BT and Roundup-ready uh, corn since uh, 1996, and that's giving them 17 tonne per hectare. Well, no, more than that, it's um, 170 bushels to the acre crop yields average across the US. And there's no reason why Africa can't be doing the same. Instead of one tonne a hectare or 15 bushels to the acre, 
you know, they've got to be up around 10 times that. So that's the journey and it's exciting. And I'm honoured to be, um, you know, part of the, uh, th this call and um, for South Australian people they would they would know Chris McDonough. Chris and I have gone back a long way. We worked together in the early 2000s and probably the late 80s helping to promote no tillage across the Mallee in Victoria and South Australia and uh, you know Chris is going to be um, get coaching me a bit as well as I'll be coaching him. We'll work together as along with a few other key people so if anyone's really interested and knows Chris well uh, they can give him a call as well. Yeah, what a fantastic journey and opportunity. Really excited to hear how it goes. Thank you so much, Bill, for your time today. We wish you all the best in your new ventures. And yeah, thank you. Thank you, Tegan. Um, thank you for the opportunity to share, particularly about Africa, because that's the new chapter. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Don't forget to share this episode with a mate if you took some value away from it and be sure to subscribe, rate and review our podcast. Thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you in the next episode.